Welcome to Shelving Cart. I'm Sarah. And I'm Teddy. And we're both librarians here to have a podcast book club with each other and all of you. On Shelving Cart, we talk about books like it's a one-hour book club meeting. So we talk about likes, dislikes, reviews, general feelings, and more. And generally completely spoil the book, so be warned. Yes, and today we will be discussing Camp Zero by Michelle Min Sterling. Woohoo! So... Teddy, you suggested this book for the podcast. How did you hear about it? Because it is Michelle Minsterling's first book that she wrote. Totally. So this has been on my TBR for a long time because another librarian friend of ours, Becca, who we went to grad school with, (laughs) got an ARC, um, an advanced reader's copy of it, and gave it like a four-star review, but I couldn't understand why it wasn't a five-star review. I was like, okay... (laughs) Um, I think that you're just being stingy with the stars. And so I put it on my TBR, but didn't get an advanced reader copy of it, even though I tried. Um, And then I've been like waiting for it to come out, waiting for it to come out. I think when I pitched it, it wasn't even out yet. Um, And then it came out (laughs) and I cataloged it and felt very secure in my decision. Like, I'm not going to lie, cataloging books is a great way to expand your TBR list <laughs> because you're like, ooh, this looks pretty good. Like, that's how I find most of the books that I want to read these days is, like, cataloging them. Our, our cataloger at work, when he's, like, wrapping the books in plastic, his desk is on the way to the water cooler for me to fill up my water bottle. And I always see, like flashes of books and i'm like oh that looks really good interesting yeah Yeah, covering books yeah it's the librarian privilege because i when you suggested this book i went and saw uh, if we were had it or whatever and the cat or or the cataloger also like buys the fiction books so i went and saw that he had placed it on order so i got to be like hey um paul can you pull that aside for me, as soon as it comes in. So <laughs> I got it first. Uh, yes. That is librarian privilege. Um, okay. So I have some background on Michelle Min Sterling. Um, admittedly, it's not a lot. Um, she, she doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Uh, I think yeah. it's just because she's so new to being onto the writing scene. Um, or like the published scene i guess i would say um so here's what i have very quick bio michelle min sterling is that she was born in british columbia canada however right now she resides in cambridge massachusetts um so shout out to a a massachusetts icon um (laughs) she is a professor at berkeley college of music where she teaches literature and creative writing um i watched an interview with her and she did note that a lot of the um classes that she or one of the classes that she teaches is a class uh, a class fo- focusing on dystopian slash utopian literature um so that makes a lot of sense for the content we have today <laughs> yes um she's <laughs> the so i watched an interview with her on good morning america because this book is a, a like a read with jenna book too it was selected in one of the good morning america book clubs And she said she wrote Camp Zero because she wanted to write a call to action on the climate crisis and show what happens through collectivism and collective action. Um, 
And then she also said in that same interview, as a fun fact, um, there was a, an all black women book club there also interviewing her as part of this Good Morning America interview. And so one of the questions was like, who would you want to play in a movie or show adaptation, the characters? And she said she would mostly want to cast new people, but she did say she would love to have Nicolas Cage play uh, Mayor, <laughs> which just brought me a lot of joy. <laughs> That's so funny. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I got on her. She honestly, there's not a whole lot out there. All of her bios like on Berkeley or on her website are just like she was born in Canada and she lives in Massachusetts and she works at Berkeley. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's wild that this is her debut novel and it's like blowing up so fucking hard. Like, yeah, this is a popular book. The hold list on the library is long, you know, it brings me. Brings me to kind of to an interesting factoid is that I was looking at the Goodreads reviews and this is kind of rated low on Goodreads. I don't know if you've looked at all and it's very confusing to me. I think it might be, well, I don't know. I think it might be just people expecting one thing from like sci-fi fantasy and not getting it. Um, So it has a 3.23 average on Goodreads. What the f- fuck yeah, yeah. What the fuck? three stars is the most common most common yeah i know it's heinous what the fuck but so here i i pulled out two two star ones and one five star ones burn loves books for a two-star review there were definitely some things i enjoyed parentheses white alice the sex workers but after the slow build it feels like the book just kind of ends I honestly don't know that I truly got this book at all. Have you ever felt that way after reading a book? Sadly, I don't think this one was for me, but I know many people have enjoyed it. Have you read it? Thoughts? And then Andrea gave a 2.5 star review and said, or said 2.5 stars. Mm -hmm. Not sure that I really understand the point. It was interesting, but didn't work for me on a lot of levels. Too much left undiscussed slash (laughs) unexplored. And then, oh my God. I know, and then Bethany, five-star review, or five-star review from Bethany said, I don't know why Goodreads hates this book. I thought it was so well done. I read a ton of books every year. I read a ton of books every year, and I have no problems quitting anything that starts off lame. I don't want to discount the powerful message, but I was so excited to bring this book to the beach and read it. Give it a shot. Um, so just shout out to Bethany. Yeah, She's Bethany like, what the, fucking f- gets what the fuck? Right. What the fuck are you all talking about? No, that's bunk. That's, that just can't be right. I, you know like, what? I think that this book is like, my thinking is that it's just over 300 pages or just under 300 pages long. And so because of that, it's like, might seem like it might be like an easy read, but I don't think it is. Like, I think it's kind of more in a similar vein to like Born, where you might need to talk about it mm-hmm. quite a bit with somebody before it really like settles in to you or... Or, like, have a discussion, because the writing is very clear, it's very plain, like, quote-unquote plain writing, but it's, like, Mm -hmm. there's a lot going on. So I think it just is lacking some of that, like, uh, like, a literary look into it, if you know what I mean. I kind of feel like what might be doing it in is that it got sold to the wrong audience. Like, it's a popular book in that it was made a book club with, read with Jenna book or whatever the fuck, like and so there are people like i have patrons all the time whose like entire tbr is just book club read with jenna picks good morning america oprah like 
they just read people love being told what to read yeah i'm no exception but it's true and there's like a whole culture of people who get their tbr list from these book clubs and i think that this was like kind of an interesting choice for read with jenna yeah um because like i know like the kinds of books that are on that list it's not that they're not smart books they are and a lot of times they're like very like good um literary choices like i it's not that i think that those lists are like junky books it's and it's not that i think that this book is like too smart for those people it's that i think that it doesn't fit the mold of what those book clubs usually pitch in that it is speculative fiction about a sex worker bringing down anarcho like anarchy style bringing down libertarian capitalists and like i don't think anyone is like (laughs) i I just don't think that's the typical vibe for those book clubs that's why i feel like um a book discussion may assist with the dislikes of the book you know last week or last two weeks ago when we talked about born I went back and changed my review to four stars instead of three stars. You know, it's like you you get more out of a discussion. So I think this book might be part of that. So I think all of the people that maybe read it who was maybe the intended audience, if they had like a conversation about it with somebody else who had read it, that may change mm-hmm. things, perhaps. And I think, yeah, your copy, you read the hardcover, right? Yeah. Yep. I read the ebook and so mine came with discussion questions and an interview with Michelle Min Sterling mm. and I know yours didn't. I think that that was a smart move to include because it sort of like gently guides you towards the point of the book. Like I think if people happen to read those like I read them because I wanted to be prepared for our discussion, but like I think that would help the first guy who was like, I don't know if I fucking got it. It's like, read the questions, see where they're leading you. And then maybe like have, have a self discussion, have yeah. a whole combo with yourself. You know, I also think like I have been known very much to read a book, close it and then pick up another book and read it and close it and pick up another book and read it and close it and so on and so on. And so I think if you're not in the mode to have like a critical discussion or thoughts about the book that you're reading then this might not be the book for you either which is which is also completely fine literally reading books that are for thinking about is not a morally good activity yes (laughs) it's morally neutral (laughs) agreed agreed but this just happens to fall in that category yes yes okay all right so let's read the book jacket i got my copy so we can do our ASMR opening the book. Gorgeous. (laughs) Incredible. Um, Okay. So, in remote northern Canada, a team led by a visionary American architect is breaking ground on a building project called Camp Zero, intended to be the beginning of a new way of life. A clever and determined young woman, codenamed Rose, is offered a chance to join the Blooms, a group hired to entertain the men in the camp. But her real mission is to secretly monitor the mercurial architect in charge. In return, she'll receive a home for her climate-displaced Korean immigrant mother and herself. Rose quickly secures the trust of her target, only to discover that everyone has a hidden agenda and nothing is as it seems. 
Through skillfully braided perspectives, including those of a young professor longing to escape his wealthy family and an all-woman military unit research unit struggling for survival at a climate station, the fate of Camp Zero's inhabitants reaches a stunning crescendo. Atmospheric, fiercely original, and utterly gripping, Camp Zero is an electrifying page-turner and a masterful, masterful exploration of who and what will survive in a warming world and how falling in love and building community can be the most daring acts of all. Okay. We're getting a yeah. little into, like, love will save us from capitalism, which we have both I'm... agreed is not. But I, I think that's book jacket marketing. I don't yeah. think that's real. <laughs> I mean... It's a little bit part of the book. Oh, I, no. We'll discuss. We'll discuss. <laughs> I Honestly, I, I pretty much think that that's the theme uh, in any climate climate fiction sci-fi book. Like, pretty much. Always this in there. Not that that's a bad thing. Human connection is a huge part of it, you know? It's just more nuanced than love saves us against capitalism. It's yeah. just saying that those things are good. Yeah, <laughs> love is fine. good. Love is okay. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so um, this was also mentioned in a Goodreads review that I did not read here, but one of the the publisher week publishers weekly blurb on this is a stunning debut. This should earn a place on shelves alongside Station Eleven and Annihilation, which I saw a lot of the two and three star reviews. Not a lot, but a couple reference that exact review, yeah, and they they were mad. Because they were like, I don't like it when like a reviewer references other books because it sets up the expectations too much for like a specific thing. Yeah. So that was somebody's complaint was about that exact review. I think that's a bad take, but I do think that comparing this to Station Eleven is like very smart and good. All right, Teddy, will you lead us off with a plot overview? Yes, I tried my best to make it as short as I could. It's still fucking long. A lot happens in 300 pages in this book, but let's get into it. Okay, so Camp Zero is set in the near-ish future in a world where climate change has made its mark clear and techno-libertarianism is gaining a strong foothold. Rose, as she is called for most of the novel, is a Korean-American woman who, after being raised on Cape Cod, becomes a sex worker in the Floating City, a literal offshore city for wealthy capitalists trying to escape the climate crisis. While working there, she becomes a paid companion to Damian Mitchell, the wealthy inventor of the Flick, which is a chip implant given to every child at birth that allows internet access at all times. Damian offers Rose a job, the payment for which will be a life for her and her mother in the Floating City. She must go to the far north with a group of other sex workers. There she will act as a mole, appeasing an architect named Mayer, who thinks he is building a safe haven for community in Alaska, complete with a university. In reality, Mayer's community is a front for Damien's mining of rare minerals needed for flicks, but Rose must keep him from knowing this. Meanwhile, Rose falls for a worker in the construction side of camp known only as the Barber. The book has multiple characters to follow, and so we also meet Grant, a young man who comes from money and is running from his family's privilege after leaving his girlfriend to die in a climate disaster. More on that later. Boo. Grant. Boo, Grant. <laughs> Grant comes to Mayor's project, thinking that he will be a professor, but instead finds himself trying to teach an unwilling and gruff group of construction workers. Meanwhile... Not far by Snowmobile, a government research post called White Alice has been populated entirely by women charged by the U.S. government to monitor climate change in the area, 
The women have been left to their own devices after a while and in their last meeting with government supervisors managed to pull off a plan to get one of the women pregnant. They now survive as a family with a baby on their own in the wilderness, sometimes venturing into nearby towns and murdering men for necessities. Go off white Alice. They have adopted one man into their group known as Genesis so that there can be a new generation after their daughter, Aurora. These three points of view converge at the end of the book when it becomes clear that white Alice has infiltrated Mayor's project with one white Alice woman, Sal, posing as a madam, their daughter, Aurora, posing as a sex worker, and Genesis posing as the barber. Dun, dun, dun. They plan <laughs> to violently stop the construction project and rope in Grant and Rose, whose real name has been revealed at this point as Nari, after they all literally blow up Myers camp and kill the executives involved, Grant leaves to become part of White Alice, while Aurora and Nari head south to the continental United States. So, yeah, just a fuck ton happens, and that is like the most bare bones plot overview that I could possibly give. People die, people fuck, there's like a lot of throwing men's bodies in ice holes. It's it was it's a whole great. Thing. It was great. Thanks. Um, yes. No, that was very succinct, in my opinion. So, great job. Because you wrote that by yourself, which I normally do not do. (laughs) I had the help of a couple of, um, very over-explanatory reviews on the internet, which is always good. (laughs) Okay, so, quick rundown a little bit more into our characters. We're gonna speed run this. Um, I grouped them by location, because I think that that makes the most sense. Because then you get kind of senses of, like, what's going on in the story. So, starting off with Camp Zero... Camp Zero is the Canadian camp by Architect Mayer, um, and it's supposed to be a future campus in his mind, but really, Mayer is, like, colonizing Canada, slash, they're mining uh, the minerals for uh, Damien's flicks. So, that's Camp Zero, and that is where we have um, a group of sex workers known as the Blooms, where Rose, our main character, one of our main characters, slash Nari, as we realize her name is later, is working. Um, there's a, a whole group of Blooms, but the most important one to note, and so Blooms are all the sex workers, and they've all been given flower names and that's why they're called the blooms um and that is where she works with willow um so willow is a the other most important bloom because she is actually the daughter of white alice aurora posing as a sex worker to infiltrate camp zero which brings us to judith who is the madam who is also sal from white alice also infiltrating camp zero remember rose is also infiltrating camp zero for damien to keep so that's Mayor three happy. out of seven right <laughs> yeah or three out of eight rather yeah. if you include judith right yes so. exactly exactly Okay, so then also at Camp Zero, we get Mare, who is the architect who used to be in his young idealistic years, a like anarchist, kind of anti-capitalist situation. But as time has gone on, he's become a full-on libertarian asshole. Um, And then we have the foreman, who is also one of Damien's moles. So he is working at the camp that's drilling. He's a bad dude. He's a bad guy. He gets murdered. Thank God. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then we have the barber who is also infiltrating from <laughs> White Alice because he is Genesis, who they basically picked to breed with Willow. But the barber and our friend Rose slash Nari fall in love. 
And so that kind of causes issues with Willow and the barber. And then we get Grant. And Grant is a full-on fucking piece of shit asshole. Um... <laughs> yeah. I gotta say, I, I want to interject quickly to say that, like, in the book discussion for this, Michelle Moon Sterling was like, I really tried to find that balance with Grant between, like, having you, like, hate his flaws and make him sympathetic at the same time. He's not sympathetic. Fuck Grant. I, I felt like maybe five percent bad for him like at the beginning you know going through the story i was like listen at least he's thinking critically but he just needs to like kill his dad like i don't know what to say you know like fucking get over it like people disagree with their parents all the time you know so grant yeah yeah so so grant um is a rich kid he is a rich kid who goes to in the universe it's called walden um like it's university. harvard it's harvard <laughs> it's harvard he goes to harvard <laughs> walden um and when he's having a little bit of a rebellious phase with his parents he meets a woman um named uh, jane who he abandons in the middle of a fucking hurricane to die I, violence for jane like i oh. Oof. And then and then her his whole character after that is just using Jane for character development. It's, it's like it's awful. It's just so awful. So, so, so Grant Grant is at in in current times he is at Camp Zero because he thinks he's going to be a teacher at the school, but there's no school. Right. Yeah. I do want to clarify for our listeners briefly. I know I'm ruining your speed run. Is just that like Sarah and I went to the beach together last weekend and I had already finished Camp Zero. We were doing an okay job of not talking about it, but we were all reading before bedtime. We were all sharing a room and Sarah <laughs> puts her book down and goes, turns to her boyfriend and goes, you would never leave me in the middle of a hurricane, right? <laughs> the boyfriend's like, no. And I turned to win and I'm like, you would never leave me in a hurricane, right? Like, it's just so absurd. Like, this yeah. is like a, one of the jaw drop moments. Yeah. Of, because you don't figure it out until like late game that that's what he did and why he's feeling so shitty about Jane. And that, yeah. Yep. He sucks. He sucks. <laughs> so those are our Camp Zero characters. Then we get White White Alice, which is a, a radar station in Canada, but it is... um staffed by american soldiers but that's kind of like the cover story of the situation the american soldiers are actually getting abandoned there to see if they can survive in the winter or like survive up there and what they the community that they create um so there we have it's this one's told in second second person um and it uses the collective we um which is great. Hot. Yeah. Yes. And that in who we have at White Zero, I mean, oh my God, at White Alice is a botanist, a biologist, a cartographer, a meteorologist, a programmer, and a security specialist, all women. And then we also have Sal, who is their sergeant, who she is kind of like keeping them all in shape and like giving the quote unquote orders. Um, and then we also have Genesis, who's the barber who's also there. And then we have Aurora, the baby who was born um, during their escape, like their not escape, but starting a new generation um, of white Alice. Um, 
And then we have our next location is the floating city slash Boston. Um, because the floating city is offshore of Boston and that's where Rose and her mother live. They live kind of like on the North shore of Massachusetts. I was imagining it like, like Nahant or something like that. Um, if you're, I think I said Cape Cod, but I think you're right. Yeah. I think it's the North shore. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever. Um, so, uh, then, so Rose and her mother live there. And then we also have the floating city in the floating city. We have Damien and Damien, um, as Teddy mentioned in the outline, um, is the creator of the flick, which is just the social media feed that's like injected into your body, um, at birth. And, Rose become uh, is a sex worker for Damien in the floating city, and that's who she is spying for at Camp Zero. These the floating city slash Boston stuff is all flashbacks in the timeline, mm-hmm. and then we get uh, Grant is also there because that's where he does horrible things to Jane, and that is where Jane is um, because she was working at catering an event at Walden which is where Grant met her and then they fell in love and then there was a hurricane and his parents picked him up in a fucking helicopter and they're like we'll go back for her I promise there's no time right now but we'll go get her she'll be fine and she's dead she's dead she's dead and the last she writes a letter to him and the in the letter she writes she writes I'm growing used to the way I sound when I cry in the dark brutal it's fucked up okay those are our characters that was not a speed run but it's okay because we're just talking about it so we did not bury the lead on this one but did you like it I why i loved this book i <laughs> loved this book i think it was smart speculative fiction um there were so many characters to love and just the right number to hate the world was really good um it got a little complicated with the number of moles. <laughs> um, but I loved it. Like, I just had fun all the way. Um, there was a little bit of, like, um, collective imagination stuff that I found really intriguing and exciting. Like, I think this book just had a lot of smart shit to say, and I was really here for it. Like, I just loved the shit out of it. Yeah. I gave it an easy five. On yeah. Goodreads, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that I really enjoyed it, too, and that um, what I liked about it is that it is a 300 pages, it's a tight story, Um, Mm -hmm. like, there's not a sentence that is wasted in the book, so Mm -hmm. not that it's not a complex book, because of course it is, but the writing style how it is written to make all that make sense in 300 pages. It has to be very like clean writing style, Mm. which I really like. That is a personal favorite of mine is kind of a more minimalist writing style, which I think this isn't super minimalist, but it has it because otherwise Mm. this book could have been easily like 500 pages long. I'm sure that there were drafts of this story that were 500 pages long, but shout out to Michelle Minsterling and her editor for getting it to like this because I think that the way it is is very impactful there's just no there's uh it's bing 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 but in a good way yes in like a in a perfect way let it be known that bing 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 can also be so positive yeah sometimes we love bing 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 I mean like Ursula K. Le Guin is bing 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 all the time you know like because she's just like let me just stab you in the heart with this line in this book 
unless you're reading Left Hand of Darkness, which has never said Bing once. <laughs> There's not even a single Bing in there. <laughs> That's true. But that is true. However, still great. Um, yeah. But I think I think what's great about this is that it there are so many lines in this book that it's like, I think some people might interpret it as being like too on the nose or like over the top or like, you know, whatever. But I think it's just sentences like like Michelle Min Sterling is being like, this is what I believe via my characters, <laughs> you know, yeah, and there, I respect the hell out of a book that has no holds barred, just like this is absolutely what this book is about. And so I really like that in this book. I think that takes bravery, too. Yes. To and it's that. hard to, hard to get a book published like that. Yes. Especially a book that's like, I don't like men this much. Mm-hmm. As this book mm-hmm. is like, men oh are bad. In my draft of the notes, I have like notes on all the characters because I didn't realize. Okay, so like we decided to do a speed run of the characters because we were like, we have so much shit to talk about in the back half that like we can't spend so much yeah. time <laughs> talking about everybody. Um, but one of the characters I have in my own notes is men, parentheses, as an idea. <laughs> awful (laughs) yeah i know i know okay well do you who was your favorite character okay so this is a trick right like i loved nari a lot which i think is like it's also kind of hard to write a book where your main character is people's favorite character and i would argue that nari is like definitely of the main characters the mainest yeah um so and what i really liked about her character arc was that it was an arc away from escapism in a really satisfying way um like damien offers her this job and says you know i'll set you up in an apartment with your mom in the floating city and he says you'll be the first to see the sunrise and you'll never have to think about the mainland again and that's why she takes this job And over the course of the book, as she like becomes more inveigled with the people around her, as she falls in love with Genesis, um, whose real name we never learn, by the way, um, she um, starts to like sort of slip away from escapism. And at the end of the book, she sort of rides into the sunset towards all her problems with Aurora and I thought that that was a really powerful movement of a character and so I'm tempted to say that um but my real favorite character was just all of white Alice I want to move in with them these are my women I understand each and every one of them um you know white Alice because it's written in the collective we I think we can call safely one character and I loved them they literally murder men for gas and oil <laughs> and um and money they become and money and they become like a sort of like local legend which i love and like the blooms find writing in the dressing room in one of the um they were like set up in a mall um and one of the dressing rooms has writing in it that says white alice is here not white alice was here why Alice is here. And like, I just love my spooky ladies. You know? <laughs> I'm kind of obsessed with them. Um, what about you, Sarah? Well, Favorite? 
I want to say that that description of Rose's arc is very literary, and I really appreciate that because I feel like I passively enjoyed that, but until you said it, I did not like actively appreciate mm. that exact mm-hmm. arc. So thank you for that nugget. But um, my favorite character is also White Alice. Um, little side fun story, real quick, is that when I was in high school, my freshman year of high school, <laughs> this is an embarrassing story about me i'm ready Let's my go. freshman year of high school my high school english teacher who i my freshman year of high school english teacher who i loved and i still very much like like the the times that we had in high school were great um he was like hey you should read this book i think you'd like it and i was like okay what is it and he was like it's anthem by ayn rand I know, I know, which I had no oh political, gosh. like, attachment. I didn't know anything about Ayn Rand then, which is why it's embarrassing for me. I mean, I was 14, but I didn't know anything about anything to do with that, right? <laughs> so I don't know if you know the conceit of Anthem at all, but I read that book in, like, literally a night. I took it home and I read it. I know. Um, and This is hurting me. I know, yeah. me too, <laughs> thinking about it. Um. And it's a story about how a collective, it's told in we, like, the whole time. And then somebody breaks off from the collective to, like, save their, I don't know, like, save their settlement or whatever. And breaks off into an I, and then it comes first person to save it. So it's, like, literally kind of... (laughs) the opposite of this book like the complete opposite but when i read this book like not to say that my politics are inherent to who i am like having always known that but when i read that book i was like i really liked the we parts at the beginning (laughs) (laughs) and i didn't because i came back in i was like oh i read this book in one night i liked it i liked the beginning but i didn't really like the end you know, without knowing yeah. anything about Ayn Rand, anything, which is also hilarious now to be like, oh, I've read a book by Ayn Rand. That is the shortest one she's written. So, you know. Yes. Anthem, if you're going to read any Ayn Rand, yeah. read Anthem. I I read um, The Fountainhead when I was 13 to be a rebellious little shit. <laughs> I know. And my dad, I specifically remember being like, look, dad, I'm reading The Fountainhead. And I remember him being like, it's good that you're trying to expand your political views. And I was like, what? <laughs> I like didn't know what I was reading. <laughs> I, um, so I, I do. Yeah, I so, think it's very fair to be like White Alice is Michelle Min's, Michelle Min Sterling's um, answer to Anthem. I think that's a very smart take. Yeah, I mean, really, I was like, oh, yeah, I've done this before. I loved White Alice, but Anthem is a trash book. Let's not get yeah. it wrong. Um, And my least favorite character is Grant. He can go die in a fucking hole. <laughs> um, yeah, Grant was definitely the shittiest person, Um, I would say. Like, by a long shot, far and away. I think after I found out that he literally, de- like, de facto murdered his girlfriend, like... That I was like, anytime he came back up on the page, I just in my head was thinking, shut the fuck up. Like, I don't, right. give, I don't care about you anymore. <laughs> How could I ever care about you? Like, I've ugh. lost all respect for you. Yeah, I no, mean, absolutely. seriously. I'm like, oh my God, she literally died in the bathtub. She had to shit in a pot. 
That's in the book. She shit in a pot while he was away. And while he was away, to clarify, he got, like, whisked away to his parents' house in the floating city. So he was, like, perfectly fine. And then, of course, when he finds out that she died, he, like, throws some shit and is, like, really pissy. But it's like, don't get in the fucking helicopter without her then. Like, go back and get her. I just don't understand. He already didn't like his parents then. And if he didn't already like, he already didn't like them, he shouldn't have trusted them. But he's like, but I love my dad. I can't say no to him. Grow up. Gross. Grow up. Grow Stop up. being a fucking man baby. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sarah has a lot of feelings. I just, it. I just, just disgusted me in a way that I can't eat. It's like the, one of the most deplorable things. I saw one of the Goodreads reviews that was like, this is a little too man hating. And I was like, even if you don't want to do a general, I hate men situation, the man in this book, all of, pretty much all of the men in this book are trash. Like, even if just looking at the book, those ones are horrible. Like how you know whatever <sighs> uh uh could i just go ahead and say that men as the idea <laughs> yeah are my least favorite character like i think okay grant sucks the foreman who is damien's mole also sucks he gets a satisfying di- uh dispatchment in that he tries to force himself on nari and then sal as judith fucking slits his throat yeah and then they stick him <laughs> like in an a, ice fishing hole <laughs> literally the baddest bitches alive uh take care of that because that's their um, I, the ice fishing hole is their is their murder drop-off point yes in yes. the book <laughs> yeah it's so beautiful um i think like this is the this is the quote that i set aside for men as an idea that like i think really gets to why i like am joining the man-hating train because like let's be real y'all have met men like (laughs) here's here's what it is um the prophesizing about how and what and most importantly who will survive was a common topic among rose's clients in the floating city they often discussed how they plan to hold on to their wealth in periods of crisis offshore banks offshore cities temperamental government bonds cashed into gold divestment of all fossil fuels into clean energy portfolios with a healthy percentage devoted to data surveillance and cybernetics research. And that for me is like such a perfect thing, like a perfect analysis of like what is wrong with the protect yourself mentality that all of the men in this book have, that it's like they will do anything to remain as wealthy and privileged as they have been. Um, The exception to this, of course, is Genesis um, slash the barber. Um, But it's because he doesn't have any upward mobility. Like, this is also a book about hating rich people as much as it is about hating men. Um, But someone in the book, and I, I forgot to attribute it, um, it's either Sal or Nari, <laughs> and I love that their voices are similar, says, why do men take so easily whatever they want? Because nothing will ever be enough. The more a man possesses, the more he thinks he deserves. Yep. I think that was Nari. Apt. Apt. Absolutely yep. beautiful. Yeah. I think I, I highlighted that quote too somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I also think it's like you cannot 
I think that this is a theme that Ursula K. Le Guin brings up in her books very commonly, too, is that you cannot separate man from capitalism. Like, capital M, man. And not to say women are not part of the problem in capitalism. Of course they are. Like, glass ceilings, all of that bullshit. All of that bullshit is part of capitalism, right? Like, all of that. But I think kind of what is posed is like men did it first (laughs) you know like men caused these problems you know Mm -hmm. driving forces yeah 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 yeah. which does kind of bring me a little bit to the only things that i have two things that i'm like a little bit hesitant about in this book Mm. and that's like i'm definitely in the five star range for this book but is that there's like a couple little dislikes that I had and I one of the Goodreads reviews did bring this up which I did agree with um is that there's no like indigenous perspectives in this book no indigenous perspectives and then Nari is not a white woman but there's also like no discussion on like it's like very gender based uh like analysis in the book so there's not a lot of race-based analysis like not a lot of intersections on like race there is some discussion of like nari being half white um half korean um but it's not really discussed in like a greater sense which is the only thing that i think maybe could have been lacking especially because a lot of it has to do with like land mm-hmm. in the book so i think indigenous culture could have been a part of this book too I think, okay, I have a couple of responses to that. I think in terms of like indigenous perspectives in speculative fiction about climate change, like I think it's just unfair to ask an Asian American woman to write that book. No, um, uh, yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I, I hesitate to be like, oh, this perspective is not what we need to tell this story. I think that would be a sick ass book and i would absolutely read it if somebody like wrote an indigenous perspective on this um but i just don't think it's necessarily fair to ask sterling to do that i guess I not she, yeah i guess not a perspective like not a pov character more what i mean mm. is like a discussion of that in the book like of I think there in- are- Right. I think there are a few moments yes. where, like, indigenous uh, cultures are referenced in in terms of, like, the power that they have, lose, regain, maintain in regards to, like, land in the north. Yes. Um, and so you get this understanding that there's, like, a separate-ish battle going on um, about land stewardship that yeah. like is not the focus of this book but is happening in the yeah. world yeah and so that was like i i get that like do i wish that that was like maybe more entwined like yes do i understand why it wasn't also yes yeah i think in terms of nari being half white half korean um there was a good line about it in um I wrote this down in my notes about the floating city that um, Nari says back in the floating city, ethnicity was a ready-made brand um, in that like her identity as um, 
and a Korean American woman like was sort of like funneled into her sex work in a way that like glazed over her like actual identity and like instead became like about um fetishization um and i also think we get that when we're talking about how her parents met which is that her dad was in korea and like basically like chose nari's mother and just brought her back to the states with like no social network or support and like there's all this stuff about naming nari and like um how her mother had to like sort of fight the in-laws to be able to name her something Korean. And like, so I think that there's stuff in there. Like, I, I guess, I don't know. I, I hesitate. Like obviously as a white person, like I can't say like whether it's good enough. I just, I do want to call out its press. No, it it was. It's definitely, it's definitely there. I think it's definitely shown to how Nari's more of a commodity as it, as a half Korean, half American woman, as a mixed race Asian woman, yeah. like that, I think is definitely in the book. I think it's more of like the general, like political analysis of the book. You know, it's yeah. definitely it's definitely a focus on the heavy like class is the greatest intersection, which is something right. that I do agree with. So, but there are things that. You know, it's more in depth than that. There's more to it than that. And it has such like a beautifully diverse um, crop of characters that every once in a while, like the, it feels like a little quote unquote colorblind, you know, Mm. you know, just a little bit. But I don't don't think, like you said, I'm also white. So it's not like I have the capacity to say whether it's good enough or not. You know, (laughs) yes. And I do generally think like a class-based analysis is like the thing that will free us all, basically, you know, (laughs) so. Right. And it seems like Michelle is on. Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, But this one's not necessarily a dislike, but it's more of a confusion that Mm. hopefully through discussion you can help me see. But... Mm. What do you think that Sterling was saying at the end about White Alice with Nari and White Alice and how, like, Nari has the discussions with Aurora when they're leaving is like, you don't have to kill people. You don't have to do that. You don't have to murder. And, like, the White Alice, the White Alice, like, ethos is only take a life when it's absolutely necessary. Love your family more than yourself. Be reverent of your environment. The sacrifice of one is worse is worth the continu- continuation of many, and leave something behind for the future generation. Like mm-hmm. I'm not sure how Michelle Minsterling feels about White Alice in this book. In in the interview I watched with her, somebody asked, "Was like what? Where would you want to live?" And she said, "White Alice herself." Right. So, right. so I'm. Ju- that's like my only lingering questions. A little bit are that kind of the ending points. Um, I think it maybe have to do with what you said earlier, where you were like Nari goes from like 
looking away from her problems and escaping her problems to going and facing them head on. So she can't just go join White Alice because of her mother. But she seems to have like a some a couple moral issues, aka the murdering <laughs> with White Alice, aka the ice holes. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I hear you, and I think okay. So first of all, I think that Michelle Minsterling loves White Alice because yeah. <laughs> also in the reader's guide, the reading group guide, um, she says that writing the collective voice of White Alice came very easily, which <laughs> is like very darling. Um, I also want to pull this quote where she says, I wanted to explore how agency and self-protection are experienced for women in Camp Zero and how they forget their own sense of accountability and justice in a world that is squared against them. And so I think while that list of like things from like White Alice literally has like their commandments. Yeah. And while the White Alice commandments are like mostly really good, um, they're also uh, in a sense their own kind of floating city. Like it's less shitty and they all certainly take care for care of each other, but it's also very isolationist. Yeah. It's very like we will survive by being apart from the world. And I think that in a rejection of that, Aurora and Nari, who both had the option to go with White Alice and sort of like live in this um like women's utopia essentially where they keep around the breeding guy and like just like survive um they both reject that and i think in a way that's an i read it as a rejection of isolationism and like as a lean towards accountability yeah um and a lean towards um collectivism i think in in a first look um white alice is the collectivist uh option yeah but when you look at it closely it's not because it's so far removed and so self-dependent and self-serving that it it isn't sustainable like if you envision a world in which white alice is successful that's eight to ten people who are doing okay yeah and i think this like where nari is like you don't have to um kill people i think that goes back to the line in the white alice commandments that says the sacrifice of one is worth the con- continuation of the many um i think and love your family more than yourself i think um nari and aurora's ride off into the sunset has a little bit to do with like a questioning of how some of those commandments look when they're expanded into the broader world yeah yeah, that makes sense. Does that hit? Yeah, no, I think that that makes sense. That's kind of the general idea I got from it too. I also got maybe like it's okay to make your own path towards these things. Like perhaps knowing that um, Michelle Minsterling does the class on utopia dystopia. I think what is often posed in that type of literature is like this isn't gonna work for somebody like mm-hmm. the, the utopia isn't always gonna work for somebody which turns it into a dystopia right so right. kind of like a you can f- forge your own way mm-hmm. with what those like moral rules mean to you basically 
like with collectivism like you know i think that rose and nori experience rose slash nori experienced that through the blooms like the blooms taking care of each other and deciding Mm -hmm. where to go not Mm -hmm. to say that choice feminism is the way but like you know Um, like with with a collective spirit maybe choice like choice feminism would be the way but not under capitalism you know i didn't expect to be thinking this much about anthem today i know (laughs) Um, but i think they're too similar yeah i know the other thing that i want to bring forward as like a literary parallel is also the people who walked away from omelas by ursula k Le Guin, Mm. um which is a story first of all fucking read it um it's a short story very very good sarah have you read it Mm -mm. okay so essentially the concept is that they're like is a utopia um, where everyone is very happy, but it all depends on the fact that there is like one severely neglected child. And if that child is not neglected and locked in a cupboard and kept away from everybody else, then the utopia will crumble. Like Broken, and, broken Earth vibes. And right. K. Jemison, Broken and Earth K. vibes. Right. And so like, basically, yes, exactly. So basically in the people who walked away from Amelis, like there's a coming of age ritual where you have to go see the child. And then there are, it, the, the title of the story is the people who walked away from Amelis because people after seeing that sometimes immediately leave, sometimes will spend years and years still in Omelas and then eventually just leave and they all like walk out. And I think that this is like, Nari and Aurora's moment of leaving Omelas. Like, they are like, actually, I'm off in search of, like, a way that works for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think, but Aurora is leaving to go kill Damien. For White Alice. But sometimes you still gotta hit a brick, you know? Like, I just, like, or throw a brick, rather. Like, I just feel like, yeah, I mean, like, yes, she's going to go kill Damien, but like Damien is not a part of everyone when I say works for everyone. No, no, that's he, yeah. that's not what I mean. I mean that she's going She's not the, leaving White, White Alice, Alice forever. Yeah. yeah, she's going, but you know, who knows what could happen along the way, right? right? Um and there's the whole bit with the song at the end where she like wants that part of humanity back too. So I think it's it's interesting, it's complex, and I think that that might be what people didn't like in the Goodreads reviews like me last last time when I was talking about how I didn't like that Bourne didn't have answers Mm. this while it's super like straightforward also does not have answers too the whole book is pretty straightforward and then the end is not right and I think that that caught like catches people off guard yeah but that is also something that I attribute to Ursula K. Le Guin as well yeah yeah so you know I think I think it's interesting because I love White Alice too. It's like an intoxicating idea. That's how I feel it's about like, it. It's, it's the like, same as like being like I'm going to move off the grid with 10 of my closest friends. We'll each learn a vital skill yeah. and then we'll like be self-sufficient. Like who hasn't had the compound dream, you know? <laughs> like it's it's that ex- like that exact same pull. Yeah. But it's, it's 
you know we all know why that won't go yes you know? it's like this quote is we took showers together applied lotion to each other's feet or snuck off into the greenhouse to kiss by the flowering pear tree we cooked together in the kitchen and and blessed the boom box we cussed we laughed uproar uproariously was this all that it takes to be happy we wondered you know Ugh. like i fucking want to be there what's the so what's bad. the end of the quote is this all it takes to be happy we wondered our work our home each other yeah that's it it's yeah. like oh like yes like yes. that's that's the communist utopia that i've yeah. always wanted but what if we got everyone on board with it so we didn't have to kill anybody right. about it you know yeah. Or you can just... I would love not to throw anyone in the, the, the personally. I think the problem is, <laughs> is that I agree with their killing. <laughs> <laughs> They're not wrong. Right. Like, yeah. But this brings me to the question. My least favorite man of all of mm. the men in this story end up with White Alice at the end. Yeah. How I... I don't know how to feel about that. Okay, so to clarify, you're talking about how Grant becomes part of White Alice. He, like, yeah. replaces Genesis. Yes. Um, Grant's not going to last a fucking week. Right? He's going to yeah. get... He's going to get murdered. Like... he. Yeah. I mean, like, okay. I think that there's something... For all the people who say that this book is about hating men on their face... Truly, Sterling took the least likable man and gave him a shot at redemption. Yeah. So that's something. Like, uh, do I personally think he's going to be capable of the growth and change that it requires to be part of White Alice? No. Do I think he's going to, like, make it very long before the women are like, you're outie? No. But I think he has his shot. And this is the shot that he's wanted. And so let him take it. When he whiffs it, he whiffs it. But, you know what I mean? Extremely fair. Extremely fair. Okay. So, uh, something that we need to talk about Mm. is the library in this book. My God. Jesus Christ. Okay. So, I put this in here, this, like, fucking quote. I also wrote this quote down. Uh, Because, okay. All right. Whatever. You just read the, the read, librarians are going to be attuned to this but the read quote the quotes so rose is like reflecting on being back in school and she says she asked a teacher what happened to the library and the teacher says and she's talking about the bpl she's talking about the boston public library like the big one and the teacher said after the books were uploaded to the flick there was no use to the, for their physical bodies the rarest volumes were sent to the libraries at walden cough cough harvard and the rest were pulped to make room for the servers now the building is a data center but you can still walk by and see the original building and my question for you sarah is how are we feeling about this narrative and it never fucking going away that like you know you live in a dystopia when the library is gone um, well, you know, there's a historical, the historical reason for this is the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Um, <laughs> I took a history of libraries course in my master's program and like the burning of Alexandria represented, I mean, it was a real thing that happened, but it also represented like an end of that culture as it was known at that time. Right. And like a loss of culture, a loss of knowledge, 
a setback. It's like burning of books and during Nazism. It's it's all and like a lot of those books being like queer history, like you know things like that, or you know it it's like the loss of culture identity and like good things in this world. Um, I'll pitch that they also burned Jewish books. Oh, it's Jewish books too. Of course, <laughs> of course. Sorry, obviously. <laughs> obviously right obviously yeah like i (laughs) (laughs) I know (laughs) not that no one doesn't know but i just feel we should throw it in i know Um, a burning of books of jewish queer anything else that nazism decided was not aryan and white yeah you know all of the above so like i'm sure they're right so the burning of the library as like it's it's loss of humanity what is the word of yeah, humanity or like um, civilization. Yeah, exactly. It's like yeah. a, a violence upon the good of humanity. I think right. is like the the theme of it all. Uh, I think this is yeah. I don't go ahead. Listen, I don't hate it. I mean, it's like Bing 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 on the nose. But as a librarian, I'm like, yeah. What the fuck do you think you're gonna do without the library? Yeah, the library right. is an institution that must be protected. It must be upheld and is, like, the one showing of, like, societal, like, good, I feel like, in America especially, that we have is, like, here's the one basically socialist institution that we have in this country. Like, of course, if it went away, it would be bad. It's the only place where homeless people are, like, sometimes allowed to go. (laughs) You know? Like, that's where I... So I get it. I get it. But... The part where I get a little, like, reticent to, like, be, like, I full force behind it is, like, the equation of, like, library to book. That, that's the spot where it's, like, this quote is, like, the books got replaced with data centers. And I'm, like, nah. And therefore the library is defunct. Like, I think, okay, so I agree with you that the equation of library to book is problematic in and of itself right like the library when it is burned should be a symbol not of like knowledge burning but rather of like community well-being yes burning yeah and like goodwill for your fellow man burning yes um and so i think this missed i think we should loop back around because i realized i never actually said things that i disliked about this book oh so, I know i'm I so sorry a, it's okay because i like forgot i was like oh i don't really have anything but this is actually so i think it it's necessary for the frame of the story and i don't deduct points of this from this um but i think For me, one of the things that, like, I get really tired of in dystopian fiction is, like, brandishing new technology as, like, the big scary. Yeah. Like, the big scary guy in the narrative where, like, the flick is, because of the way the story works, like, the flick is actually bad technology. Like, the more you use the flick the less you can remember about being a human person. And so like in this specific case, like the books being uploaded to the flick is not good because accessing them now comes at a cost to your health. Um, But I also think that like protecting libraries in some, like in most situations means like embracing the technology to make them 
better. Um, so the scary part of the library being gone is not that it incorporated technology. It's that it was overwhelmed by bad technology and then ceased to be a place of like communal liberation um, and understanding and sharing. Um, and so like, I know that the point of this book is like to talk about how like technocrats essentially are like killing the planet, which yeah. is like not wrong. Like that is correct. I think like a more, it just doesn't align with my, and this is like not points against the book because I am an individual person, but like does not align with my own understanding of technology, which is that like it can actually be quite good yeah, <laughs> and doesn't have to be horrifying. Um, and so, right, like, I think my major problem with the library narrative is that it usually is about book burning without being, like, about the loss of an important American institution. Yes, I think it's the, the yeah. space of it is, it's yeah. like, uh, my library, we have, I think, like, 30,000 books, physical, and, like... Mm -hmm. 250,000 digital right if everyone had like I love physical books but I also love ebooks and if everyone mm -hmm. had access to an e-reader like universally an e-reader the ability to use it have that be the option for them to consume books like universally that was acceptable and somebody was like let's get rid of every book in the library now and turn, change it into digital books. Like, I'm like, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? You know? But I think... Right. Fit, but you had to maintain the space. But you have to maintain the space. Right. right. You know, and the space is still the community center, et cetera. Um, but then there's things like the University of Vermont was considering getting rid of all of the books in the collection. But that is without the universal other option. And the reason why we have digital right. and physical books now is that because that is the universal option, digital and right. physical, because technology is helping people access the books for cheaper and more frequently, but it's also like not everyone has access to that technology or the ability right. to use that technology. So access meaning ability and the ability to get it. Um, mm -hmm. So I agree, <laughs> basically. I agree. <laughs> and I also am usually like, yeah, technology bad. We get it. You know, as a literal right. technology librarian, like that right. my job is to assess technology for library use and like is it right. good for my community to serve them and that is like that's the part of my job that's like really important and to be like all technology bad is just not something I necessarily agree with either um the technology in this book is bad I think the library as loss of society is a symbol that we're going to see forever. My next question, now that we're, we've settled the library issue, is, okay, so there's this, like, big reveal moment where you figure out that Judith is Sal from White Alice, yeah. Aurora from White Alice is Willow, the Bloom, and then I think there's a secondary reveal where you figure out that the barber is Genesis from White Alice. When did you put that together? What was your aha moment like? Did you guess it before it happened? Okay, well, you were literally at the beach with me when I had this. I was reading the yes. book on the beach. Also, for context, if you haven't put it together, I mean, Teddy and I live in different cities. 
Teddy and I live in different cities, but we saw each other a week ago. Yeah. Um, and it was fabulous. It was great. Um, but I was reading Camp Zero on the beach, and I was like, when White Alice goes to the mall and goes to Lake Dominion, which is where Camp Zero is, and there's like the, all the things aren't abandoned, and there are people, they're physically like they're buying something from somebody in the mall. That's when I realized we were on different timelines. And when I realized we were on different timelines, I was like, oh, that's kind of the moment. And, and we had watched uh, Judith kill uh, the foreman. And then you're like, okay, this woman is not who she thinks, who she, she says she is. And then you get White Alice going to the mall and writing the thing on the wall of the mall and people still living there. And you're like, okay, clearly this was before the events of the other of the the um rose slash nari story um so it was i was like oh something's got uh like white alice is are part of the blooms and then teddy was like well who do you think it is i was like maybe it's the wee voice or sal and so that was my guess and then i didn't really guess willow I don't think. Mm -hmm. Or Aurora. Like, I think maybe I did, but I don't remember. And then it was the moment. So we watched the the Blooms put the foreman's body into an ice hole. And then a chapter later, we watched White Alice put the body of somebody else into an ice fishing hole. And then I'm like, okay, yeah, that's okay, it. Okay, got it. That, that's it. Can I tell you my, I had a fake aha moment where I was sure that I figured it out. Yeah. And then I had my real aha moment later. But like I was convinced because I also figured out that we were on separate timelines that like the White Alice stuff was happening before the Nari stuff. And so I thought that Aurora had grown up and that Aurora was Judith. Like mm. I thought that this was like the next generation taking on the responsibility um but then of course judith is sal um and willow is aurora and you only figure that out if you're paying attention to the fact that they tattoo the child with mm. the coordinates of white alice um mm. and that um willow has coordinate tattoos mm. um but yeah i just this question was mostly uh, an excuse to air my like theory that got dashed on the rocks pretty early <laughs> well i was like oh i know what's happening and you were like tell me and i was like i'm not gonna tell you until i know i'm right <laughs> sorry right. it was awful i just wanted to know if we were having the same thought <laughs> you know okay well i mean i think that that covers basically all of my questions do you have anything that we didn't cover that you want to bring up honestly no just like michelle min sterling i love you yeah, this is a great book, especially for a first book, I feel like. Incredible. Yeah. Oh my god, cannot wait to read the next one, you know? Yeah, I know. There's going to be a next one, right? Like a next one of these books, do you think? Oh, like a sequel? Yeah, I don't know. Oh. I could go either way. I'm not always a sequel person, but... If there was a sequel, I would read it, but I think it's just so strong as a standalone that it doesn't need one. Yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah um okay great so let's move on then all right what are you well, reading now well i am 
still reading my book about the troubles in Ireland because I did not bring it to my beach vacation. <laughs> right. Classic. Um, I finished. Okay, so I'm kind of not really reading anything at this exact moment, but I just finished The Adventures of Amina Al-Sarafi by Sa- Shannon Chakraborty. Um, I did mention this book on the Darker Shade uh, of Magic episode. Yes. yes. Because I was like, if you want a pirate, like actual pirate, this is what this book is about. But I hadn't read it yet. Right. Anyway, I'm just coming back to say that I read that book and that book fucking rocked so goddamn hard. Like, truly an amazing book incredible it made me so joyous and then like stressed out like that it's like almost 500 pages but it's just like oh it's so good um and there's a literal pirate in that book called named delilah which i did not know (laughs) that's so funny it's so good that one was amazing um i also read the silent patient which fucking sucked that was a bad book um just like one of the most hateful books i think i've read ever um and then i am listening to the audiobook for the secret adversary by agatha christie how's that going that one's great it is um (laughs) a very anti-communist book (laughs) however i mean However, it is hilarious. It features these two detectives, who two like <laughs> uh, amateur detectives, Tommy and Tuppence, as they're trying to find some papers that may may have sunk on the Lusitania. It's just a romp. The audiobook is like seven hours. Listen to five hours of it yesterday in the car. It's <laughs> it's great. It's great. What are you reading? Well, I just finished Reprieve, um, which is that book about the haunted house, the full contact haunted house. Um, and that was actually, it ended up being pretty good. I, I really liked it. Um, and then I'm also reading Witch King by Martha Wells. Still reading it. Still reading it. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> Where did you get your book from? From the library. Okay. And I also got mine from the library. Boo. <laughs> so we're, we're moving up, right? Yep. So right now, it was going into it was me three points, Teddy two and a half points. So now it's just mm-hmm. four to three and a half, right? Yes. Okay. Amazing. We love getting books from the library. Oh. Um, <laughs> okay. So Sarah. Mm-hmm. If someone came up to you at the library and was like, man, I really loved Camp Zero by Michelle Min Sterling, what would you tell them to read next? If they were like, I really liked uh, Camp Zero by Michelle Min Sterling, and it's the first book I've read like this, and I really enjoyed it, I'd be like, you should read some Ursula K. Le Guin books, and specifically the books about like exploring other planets after the Earth is inhabitable. Like, I forget what the like the overarching like world that she names for all of those books are but it's not the hamish cycle is it the hamish cycle has like dispossessed left hand yeah no that's um, that's it that's that's it that's it okay so yeah so the the hamish cycle books uh by ursula k Le Guin, the two that i have read are the word for world is forest and then the left hand of darkness um the world for the word for world 
is Forrest, I think is a little bit more one-to-one because this book is about what happens when a utopia is threatened. So kind of like our white Alice situation, what happens when that is threatened. So um, in this book, they um, there are American or like Earth Terran settlers on um, a world that is full of a very peaceful, like indigenous people. And they are put into slavery by the the Terrans. And because of that, that causes violence to occur in their community for the first time. To basically strike at, back against the colonizers. Um, whereas before there was never violence in their communities. So it's about like what you have to do in order to protect like your utopia, your peace, your community. Um so that one was really great. It's also a very succinct book. I, like I would say Camp Zero is. It's like very quick. Um, and then in that same is The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. So if you wanted Camp Zero to be weirder, if you could have gone for weirder, <laughs> if, if you're just interested in like the concept of like what happens when Earth can no longer have people living in it, like that is what I would say to or like this exploration of like further ways that communities live um I think the left hand of darkness fulfills that mm-hmm. but Teddy what are your thoughts I have so many so I'm gonna be so fast okay we recommend parable of the sower after every book that we've read this season but it still counts. <laughs> if the flick stuff is not important to you and your favorite character in this book was the world that it was set in you need to read parable of the sower by octavia butler if your favorite character was nari and you liked reflecting on identity during the end of the world you should read severance by ling ma um if you want more speculative fiction about the end of America trademark, like the end of America TM, um, if you hated Mayer and thought Grant sucked balls, then you should read American War by Omar El Akkad. Um, I promise I'm not a Margaret Atwood stan, but if you <laughs> love dystopian fiction with an eye on technology, but you want the addition of bio-warfare and a more intensive critique of capitalism, you're going to want to read the Mad Adam trilogy by Margaret Atwood. If you loved the white Alice girlies, this one is for you. Um, And then the last one that I literally just added like 10 seconds ago is um, if you want more speculative fiction um, about like men and like their role in society and like what the fuck they're up to you should read fortress by s.a jones i'm just trying to get more people to read this book because i need folks to talk about it with this book was so weird um but was like really really interesting um and was like a non-turfy examination of like gender and sex in society and was like very good and like um it brought like basically it's like very compound related like everything takes place in a very like tight amount of space um and really reminded me of mare in a lot of points so Mm. food for thought yeah i think the the exploration of gender is definitely something for left hand of darkness as well oh yeah yeah absolutely okay well i think that about wraps us up so in two weeks we will be discussing The Witch King by Martha Wells. 
Teddy's really excited. Um, Brutal. <laughs> uh, you can find us on social media um, at, at shelving cart on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And new, you can also find us find us on YouTube and Tumblr at shelving cart. Um, YouTube we will be publishing visual episodes, and on Tumblr we will probably be posting notes from episodes as well so our notes our summaries things like that and you can email us at shelvingcart at gmail.com for anything mm-hmm. and everything if you're like i want i didn't like your book recommendations or if you're like i loved your book recommendations or if you have questions you could be nice. if you have yeah. questions if we ever got questions in the inbox we could go back and revisit and answer some questions from some of the books that we've read so absolutely find us wherever you want um that's it okay bye bye one two three four shelving cart shelving cart shelving cart with sarah and teddy shelving cart shelving cart shelving cart with sarah and teddy hey Thank you for listening to Shelving Cart. Shelving Cart was created, written, and recorded by Sarah and Teddy, edited by Sarah, and the theme music is by Kate Gardine. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please rate and review us on any of your podcast listening apps. We greatly appreciate it.